Hi, I'm your host, Aaron, and welcome to the First Generations Podcast, the show where we dive into the personal experience and knowledge of individuals that paved their path to success on their own terms. From entrepreneurs, professionals, and beyond, we will learn what it takes to walk through their journey and what it means to be first generation. Coming up in this episode... People with high self-love understand is, how am I supposed to be the best version for my kids if I'm not even being the best version for myself? If I'm not the best version for myself, then I'm going to snap at my kids. If I'm not the best version of myself, if I'm sleep deprived, if I stayed up all night last night trying to work on a deadline because I didn't think that my own sleep was important enough because this deadline was more important enough, then I'm going to show up to work the next day and I'm going to be half-assed. I'm going to be snapping at my coworkers. I'm not going to be performing at my best. So people with high self-love understand that they are the most important investment because once they are taken care of, then taking care of everybody else is just going to be easy and natural and abundant. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to the First Generations Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest for you. Some people call today's guest a life coach, some a healer or wellness coach. Many know her as a personal trainer and yoga therapist. Whatever we call her, her job is to help individuals live their best life. And she is really amazing at what she does. Our guest has been on TV, magazine covers, and has been covered about in a book. As a personal trainer and founder of the SoFit SF company, clients come to her to get fit and get solid advice from someone who keeps it real. As a coach, she helps ambitious people rewrite self-sabotaging narratives that are holding them back from what they want. She has been doing this since the age of 11 when she took a shy, anxious classmate under her wing, 90s teen movie style, and taught her how to shine. Whether it's finding one's dream job or the love of your life, making a big life change, or simply waking up without anxiety, she helps individuals break free of the BS stories they are telling themselves and find peace. Her programs aren't cheap, and they're not easy either. But we're talking about deep, soulful, life-changing work here, folks. She'll help you to rewire the core belief so anyone can find true fulfillment. I am proud and honored to present you our guest for today, Lillian So. Hi, Lillian. How are you doing today? I'm great, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for our conversation today. Oh, likewise here. And I uh, want to thank you for reaching out. To first start things off, what is one thing you're most grateful for at this moment? I think answering that question is really easy for me. You know, the first thing that I think about when I think about what I'm most grateful for is really my community, uh, my clients and community. I really believe that my clients are my community and my community are my clients. I've somehow, you know, over many, many years, found a way to integrate my life in in all the ways. And one of the ways that I've done that is also by, you know, integrating my work with my life so that it all just feels like it's all, you know, it's all, it's all happening together at once all the time. You're based out in San Francisco, correct? Um, I'm based in San Francisco, but my clients actually live all over the world. Okay. And I have clients, yeah, I have clients in New Zealand, Tokyo, Berlin, Poland, France. Did I already say New Zealand? Yeah, they're like, well, Canada, Mexico. So... We have clients all over the states, Chicago, New York, Seattle, LA, Cleveland, you know, Florida. So we're all over the place. So yeah, I'm very, very grateful for my worldwide community and my clients, my clients and community. Oh, wow. So prior to COVID, was your presence, your worldwide presence as big as it was? Or did you have to find yourself pivoting and transitioning into and adapting to the whole online 
aspect of online coaching and all that? Yeah. So my, uh, my work and my client base was always based in San Francisco for, you know, most of my career. You know, once, once I moved out here, I actually started my career in fitness in, in, the, in Chicago and I moved out to San Francisco in 2007 and I pretty much had a mostly local business. You know, I, you know, worked in, you know, many different clubs. I did house calls and very locally based business kind of running around the Bay Area. And actually before the pandemic, I already started to make the transition so that I could be available to people all over, uh, start moving to, you know, being able to do more coaching online so that I could serve more clients uh, all over the place. Because I would often have clients that would be like, hey, my best friend lives in New Jersey. She really wants to work with you. You know, would you would you be willing to take her as a client? It's like, yeah, of course. I mean, we could do it all online. It's no big deal. So stuff like that was already happening before the pandemic even happened. So I was already set up for that. I was already setting up for that. Honestly, by the time COVID hit, I was like, sweet, we're good. Like we're already set up for success. So it was just literally just a matter of like, you pivot a little bit faster and a little bit more aggressively than we expected to, um, as far as timing goes. And that was it. We were already ready for it. We were set up for it. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And friends and family are also doing well during our current times. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think my, actually my, my brother's in Thailand right now with his wife. His, my, my sister-in-law is Thai. So they're out there in Thailand. You know, they're visiting family. They've been out there for a couple few weeks. So they should be coming back. It's a weekend or something like that. They're good. It was my dad's birthday today. So oh. sent him, sent him over his new annual Cubs calendar. He's a Chicago Cubs fan and, uh, you know, sent him over some stuff. And yeah, everyone's doing pretty good for the most part. Yeah. No, that's good. To he's also, asking. I would assume he's in Chicago right? Yeah, my parents are in Chicago. My brother's in Chicago. I'm the only one that left the nest. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. First off, I want to congratulate you on your recently released book, So Empowered. Thank you. And what had given you the spark to write this book about the five layers of the body to take control of your life? Correct me if I'm wrong. This is also known as the SO method that you've developed, right? So the SO method is actually, I, this is where it does get a little tricky. Okay. Um, but the SO method is, it is, is actually my own personal proprietary method. And part of the SO method is actually taking care of the five layers of the body. <laughs> so, oh, okay. yeah. So the five layers of the body is actually rooted in yoga and yoga philosophy. And we learn how to take care of those five layers of the body through the so method and the five pillars that are in the so method. So in this, in the so method, we cover five different pillars for transformation, biology, programming, inner compass, communication, and manifesting. So that's the so method. And then five layers of the body are rooted in yoga and the five koshas. So koshas are Sanskrit basically for sheets or layers of the body. And so that's where the five layers of the body are actually originally from. It's actually rooted in yoga philosophy and and the yoga teachings. Okay, that's super cool. But yeah, like I I see your social media, you're blowing up and you guys made it to like number one bestseller, international bestseller and so many accolades. I want to congratulate you on that. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I'm super stoked for you. Just out of context here, you have some hand tattoos. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is super cool. Yeah, they're tatted up all the way from, you know, up to, yeah, just up to my wrist, but that's about it. Yeah. Is there a story behind that? I, I know, I know further on when I'm, I'm going to dive deeper into, let's say, like your, your early upbringing. I want to ask you about that. Cause especially for like you're a Korean American and the fact that to a lot of traditional Asian families, tattoos <laughs> are taboo, right? So taboo. So taboo. Yeah. 
course. I mean, yeah, my first, I mean, my hair is purple. It's been, it was hot pink most of my 20s. It was, I, I always, I've always had, you know, colored dyed hair from as young as I could remember. And, you know, yeah. And not only do I have, you know, not only do I have tattoos, but I also have now on my hands. My parents actually have not seen them yet because I got them recently. So they're in for a treat when I go visit them next week for Christmas. <laughs> so I don't think I'll be able to rock gloves the whole time that I'm there, but uh, it should be very interesting. I mean, there's a lot going on on my hands and everything is very intentional, you know, like how I do everything. And all the artwork on here is very traditional, uh, you know, very uh, intentional in terms of like why I've chosen what I've chosen. And, uh, you know, I don't need to go through, you know, each one unless you're curious about them. But, but yeah, it's definitely actually the funny story behind this is as soon as I got my hand tattoos, I walked out of the tattoo shop and I looked at my boyfriend of nine years and I was like, uh, he was like, oh my God, he's like, they look great. How do you feel about them? And I was like, ah, babe, I think I just ruined my life. Ha ha ha. And it was kind of like the self-deprecating joke. And he was like, oh no, stop it. You didn't ruin your life. And I was like, I know I'm joking, but I'm also not. And you know, <laughs> why that was the first thing that I said is because absolutely like I mean I grew up with pretty hardcore Korean parents you know very protective you know they tried they tried to shelter me they were not very successful at all not even a little bit but you know they tried their best to uh you know keep me on lockdown for the most part and really didn't want me to get involved in, you know, things that they thought were bad or, you know, bad influence, you know, growing up. And of course, I'm sure, you know, tattoos are one of those things. And so, you know, not only is it super taboo to have tattoos, but then to have them somewhere as visible as your hands. Oh my Lord, have mercy. Are you kidding me? Like they're, they're probably going to be so, so like, I don't even know, sad, disappointed, shocked, whatever. But also at the same time, at this point in my life, it's like, what are they going to say at this point? It's like, you know, they don't have to worry about me. Like I'm doing just fine. They don't have to worry about me not getting a job. They don't have to worry about me not being quote unquote successful because, you know, I have hand tats at this point. So I just had to do it because I just felt like it was me. <laughs> yeah. I actually really appreciate that. And I myself have tattoos, but they're on my leg. Um <laughs> <laughs> With myself, I plan to get my hands tatted too. And I think it's uh -huh, for very uh -huh. symbolic reasons too, right? Because I find yeah. that with the hands, it's almost like symbolism of how you do things. It, it can even stretch way beyond to your roots and who you are, right? Especially how we're always doing things with our hands. Absolutely. Um, your hands are like how you create. It's how you, you know, literally like create in the world. To me, they're like, they're like little bodies too. You know, there's all these curves and crevasses and, you know, all these areas that you can really connect the whole body to. Yeah. And, you know, I always think of how we made with love, right? Whenever you see like a handcrafted you know, baked good or something like that. You know, you always see like a little tag at like little craft fairs, like made with love, handmade with love, handcrafted with love. And so, you know, I really do feel that way as somebody who is in the line of service work and is in the line of healing work. You know, I really do believe that even though I don't necessarily do body work anymore, like I used to do body work, even though I don't necessarily touch people with my hands per se anymore, I still do believe that I'm constantly creating the world. And, you know, my hands are a representation of always being in creation mode. And so, yeah, a lot of the symbols and a lot of the, a lot of the artwork on my hands are very much in alignment with elements that help me tap into elements of the universe and symbolism and all that stuff. And that's Venus. That's Venus's okay. face on there. Um, and, you know, we have sacred geometry and things like that so yeah very very symbolic of just my connection to abundance and love and the universe and so forth i really respect that <laughs> thank you with you mentioning about your career i want to transition i know this was kind of out of context i just couldn't help but notice yeah, but i yeah, love tattoos <laughs> for sure same. Maybe, 
was pursuing a path in personal training, fitness, yoga, therapy, holistic healing, the mind-body modalities, coaching. Was this a journey that you knew you were going to pursue while you were growing up as a child, especially in like a traditional Korean American household? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes and no. So, you know, I started my career in fitness, which was which was pretty obvious to me at a pretty young age. However, even that whole reason why I got into fitness in the first place really started because because my family members from a young age, and I talk about this in my book too, it's, it's always kind of like my origin story, which is, you know, I grew up with my Asian relatives, not so much my, my parents, not so much my mom and dad, but, you know, extended family members always making comments at the dinner table, always making comments when they came to visit me about like how I was too big or I was too overweight or I was, you know, I was, I've been like the same height since I was like in fifth grade or something like that. You know, like I, I was, you know, I, I hit like five, six at like 11 years old and kind of stop growing. You know, I was like at peak size when I was like very, very young. And so I grew up really fast. And so my family members were like, what the hell? You know, like, what's up with this kid? Like, why is she so humongous? And, you know, being Asian, being Korean, you know, it's they have very interesting beauty standards. They want you to be really, really skinny. They want you to be really petite. They really want you to be super dainty and ladylike. And I was not any of those things. I was a tomboy. I was always like, I've always had thick thighs. You know, I've always been on the taller side. Like, I'm just not this tiny little thing. And so receiving a lot of those criticisms at the end of the day really made me super insecure and super um, self-conscious about just the way I look. I started to get really aware of, oh my God, like, am I too big? And the thing is, the reality, you know, what's funny is that I, I don't think I was actually ever really overweight, but it was because of all of that family pressure that I started exercising and dieting at a very young age. And that's what ultimately led me down the path of fitness. And then eventually I became a fitness professional very, very early on. That's what led me to study exercise physiology when I got to college because I actually genuinely did get very interested in it and I genuinely liked it. And so that's where I started my whole journey of from being criticized to feeling like I had to fix myself to then actually starting to study it and implement and, you know, learn some of those things for myself. So that's where I started my career. All of the other stuff was just a, to me, you know, without going into all the details right now, it just ultimately was a natural progression and side effect to me wanting to learn more about how I can continue to better myself, how I can continue to be happier, how I can continue to reach my full potential. So all of those other things that I've naturally acquired as skill sets, you know, as my gifts and all that, that's all just kind of happened along my journey as I've wanted to be better at serving my own clients as well as becoming a better version of myself as well. You mentioned insecurities. I have a younger sister and growing up too, I've witnessed that, especially with my parents. Uh, my parents are Chinese. And again, mm -hmm. they're, they're telling, not even just to my younger sister, but to my cousins. It's like if you're, again, like you said, there's that model image. And if you're yep. overweight or you're deemed overweight based on what the eye sees, then you know, right. you're, you're going to get a lot of the, the talk. But like you can get the negative talk first from people like you admire and that are essentially your role models to the point where, you know, that starts harboring inside your mind and you start having negative self-talk. So is it fair to assume or say that as your journey progressed through fitness and health and you've actually educated yourself more and more, that was when your insecurities with your own self-image went away or, or you have overcome them or was it yeah. a different time? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. I think there were, there were many times throughout my early twenties and stuff where I got hit those goals that I wanted, right? Meaning I was running around in my early twenties and nothing but a sports bra and short shorts. And I had a six pack and I was all fit and lean and I was a cute little thing. And, you know, and I think I was confident in, in that sense because I was, you know, lean and fit, but that was still very exterior. If I really think about it, I was still very insecure when it came to relationships. I still found myself in relationships where they weren't very healthy. I still ended up finding myself in dysfunctional relationship patterns, which that would bring up insecurities for me. You know, fear of rejection and fear of abandonment and things like that would come up. So even though through fitness and whatnot, I was able to gain the confidence to wear whatever I wanted and run around, you know, in a bikini and things like that. The inner insecurity and the inner confidence was not ever fully gone just because I looked good on the outside. And that was also part of what I realized was necessary for me. And as I continue to get older and continue to develop myself, I'm like, okay, well, why am I still ending up in these dysfunctional relationships? Why am I still taking on these clients that kind of treat me like shit? You know, why am I, why am I putting up with certain situations that I don't really care for? Like, clearly I still have some confidence and insecurity work to do. And so while fitness and all that helped me gain a lot more confidence to just kind of go out there, wear whatever I want and, you know, put myself on a stage and things like that, I still don't think that it necessarily really uh, resolved a lot of my own inner demons until I started really doing uh, the healing and inner work. Ah, uh, okay. I think I'll speak for a lot of immigrant families, not not all of them, but a lot of many of them. And I myself being through that, my own version of it. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that a lot of insecurities that one may develop stem from, let's say, a relationship from a parent mm -hmm. and how it was or how things were due to maybe a, more so a survival mindset or a more traditional mindset? For example, Mental health was not a thing. I was me as a guy or as a mm -hmm. boy. I was told I was told to never show emotion, and to mm -hmm. me, I automatically tied that to never even acknowledge my emotions. But next, you know, right. I find that I've had episodes where things are so bottled up inside, I don't know how to handle them. And next, you know, I'm just taking all my masculine energy, and I'm getting into fights or or whatever right. it is, right? So. Um, exactly. Do you find that that's a very common theme with a lot of individuals that have a lot of insecurities or trauma? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, before I even, you know, kind of go a little bit more deeper into the why and the origin and all that, I just want to start by saying everybody's got insecurities. Mm -hmm. everybody's got insecurities, no matter how successful they may seem on the outside, even if they've got it all together on paper, even if they are, you know, a successful doctor with a condo and a, and a husband and some kids and whatever, everybody's got insecurities. And I say that with clear confidence because they're my clients. Those are my clients. My clients are highly successful, busy professionals that have checked off all the boxes. They've done everything right. They've never gotten anything less than an A their entire life. They've got straight A's from the time they could get graded in school all the way clear through grad school and medical school and law school and whatever else school you can possibly get in PhD programs and all that. I don't even know if they grade you in PhD programs, but anyways, you know, and they do all the things and yet they still struggle with certain insecurities. They still struggle with fear of rejection. They still struggle with fear of abandonment. They still struggle with fear of being lonely and, you know, being alone and all that stuff. Why is that? Why is that? That Well, that's because accomplishing things 
don't make those insecurities go away. Just because you're more accomplished doesn't mean all of a sudden you're going to feel less insecure. That's the common misconception that we all have. Oh, if I write two books, I'll be confident. Once I have a six pack, I'll be confident. Once I have the house, the car, the, the money, the yacht, I'll be more confident. It's like, that's, that's not true. Like confidence and, you know, your, your security is going away. That doesn't come from external acquiring acquirements. <laughs> I don't even think that's a word, you know, acquisitions, you know, that, that's not really where that goes away from. And, and the reason for that is because we all have wounds. We all have childhood wounds. We all have traumas, big T's, little T's. You know, I think a lot of times people think that trauma is only in the form of something major, like a catastrophe, war, rape, sexual assault, abuse, domestic violence, abandonment, things like that. I think people think that those are the only ways that trauma can happen to us or exist, but that's not true. I and mean, trauma happens when your mom forgets to pick you up three days out of the week. I mean, trauma happens all of a sudden when your best friend decides that she doesn't want to be your friend anymore in the middle of the playground and rejects you in front of all of your friends at eight years old. You know, trauma happens when you go to the store at six and you, you know, steal a pack of gum because you don't know better because you don't know that stealing is a thing. And then your mom spanks you in front of everybody outside of the store because she's so mortified. I mean, trauma comes in lots of shapes and sizes. And so, all of those times that we get in trouble, all of those times that we feel rejected, all of those times that we were told that we were being a bad girl or a bad boy or that we're not doing it right or that, you know, we should have done something better. All of that gets internalized as shame, embarrassment, you know, rejection. And then that is what turns into this, this long-term insecurity and this fear of rejection as we get into our 20s, 30s, 40s, and so forth. And until we address those until we do the work, until we unpack all that stuff and really process it. We're always going to be carrying that baggage to a certain degree, and it's going to show up in lots of different ways, whether we realize it or not. Wow. I love how you put a dis clear distinction between accomplishments and how we actually feel inside, because I'm definitely guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and I know course. When you mention your clients, they've checked off all their boxes, right? Then perception is really key in how we perceive things, right? Because mm -hmm. things are not always how they look or seem to look. Obviously, there are many individuals that may be struggling to find that self-awareness, to throw those boxes away. What do you think is the hardest step for an individual to take to have that self-awareness? Because at times, we can be so blinded by what we want in our life, what we put in our mind or our subconscious. Yeah, I mean, the most difficult thing is that, like, nobody knows what they don't know, right? So, like, you know, there's so much that we don't even know that we don't know. I mean, that is, that's most of what we don't know is what we don't know. I mean, does that, does that make sense? It's like, there's so much we don't know. And, and so I think the hardest thing is that we are not people, but that we all are so programmed and so conditioned to only kind of know what we know and to continue to live according to what we've been taught and, you know, and how we see the world. And so the hardest step is for people to actually be willing to even want to find out what they don't know. The hardest step is for people to even want to see that there's actually more out there for themselves because so many people are very comfortable, you know? I mean, there's there's a reason why they say things like ignorance is bliss. There's a reason why people say things like, oh, you got to leave your comfort zone. Yeah, like I, we all know that in theory, like, oh yeah, we've all heard that quote before. But I mean, to actually take that leap and to actually want to do something different, to step out of your comfort zone, to actually find out some shit that you don't even know about. I mean, that's really scary for people. And so I think just even wanting to take that leap in itself is definitely the hardest thing for for folks because you know that 
people don't want to disrupt the flow that they have right now, even if it's not even that great. Yeah. Wow. Even if it's mediocre. That's true. So what made you initiate action and take that action to take that leap? Back then when I first started kind of yeah. embarking down the rabbit hole of, of change and transformation. Oh, yeah. As I mentioned earlier, the biggest catalyst for me was I, after I moved out to San Francisco in 2007, so I basically started all over. So I had a very, very successful career, you know, up until 2007. I started my, you know, career in fitness around probably 2004, I would say 2003, 2004, um, maybe even before that actually. And I was very, very successful from about 2004 to 2007. And, uh, I already did a lot in those, you know, first like five years of my career. You know, I opened up a studio. I, I, uh, you know, was a big fish in a small pond. I had a lot of high end clients. I was, you know, making it rain in the club. I was always buying drinks for everyone. I was just like totally living the life, but I still felt like, wow, like that, is this really it? I mean, my gosh, like I'm only like in my mid twenties and I kind of feel like I've already accomplished so much. And this can't be it. Like, I, I can't imagine that I'm just going to cruise here for the rest of my life. Like, that's crazy. Like, I'm, I'm like not even 30 yet. And so that was kind of like the first pivotal moment where I realized that I was having what I call a quarter life crisis. And so I realized that I needed to, you know, keep leveling up. So I came out to San Francisco. So I started all over again in 2007 here in San Francisco, you know, started my building my business all over again, started taking on clients all over again. And I got up to speed and I, accomplished a lot again. You know, I built up my entire client list, was back up and running, able to pay my bills, able to afford living in very expensive city, et cetera, et cetera. But again, I felt that same thing again, where I was like, God, is that it? Like I'm making like six figures. I'm like not even 30 yet. I'm crushing it. I'm doing everything right. But like, it just, God, like this doesn't really feel like it's, this is it. And I was in another relationship once again, where I felt like I was just repeating the same old patterns again. And, and those patterns are, let me explain those. The patterns that I was repeating was I was finding myself trying to people please. I was finding myself trying to do whatever my partner wanted to make him happy versus trying to put my needs first. I just wanted to do whatever I could to make sure that he was happy and thought I was the best girlfriend ever. I started to really notice that about myself. I was like, what am I doing? Why, why do I keep doing this? So realizing that I has, I was back to this successful, accomplished state, but still feeling like something was missing and then finding myself being in this relationship where I was like losing myself over somebody that honestly, that wasn't even reciprocating back to me. I was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? And so those were really the catalyst for me to be like, something needs to change. I can do better. And I don't even mean like, oh, I can do better than this relationship. I just mean like, I can just do better. I can just do better than finding myself in these kinds of situations. I can do better than feeling this way. And that was that was why I was like, I got to find out. I got to find out how to make that happen. I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to start. But all I know is that like this can be better. And that was really like my first thought. I want to thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty confident I can relate to some extent. I feel like for myself too, I'm, I always want to provide and give and be the best for other people. And something I, I personally struggled with was finding a big divide between or drawing a fine line between self-love and being selfish like did you ever have, have a conflict with that and 
Like, can you explain maybe the two two different areas of how they differ? You can be doing something that you're doing for your own self, but people can label you as being selfish. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I talk about this in my first book. It's probably, you know, I talk about this like right at the beginning of my first book, Fit CEO. And, and that is, you know, self-love and self-care is not selfish paramount because if you don't love yourself first and who, why, like, why should anybody else love you? Right? Like, I mean, I certainly, I don't want to be with a partner and invest my time, energy and love into somebody that doesn't even love themselves. Like that's just going to be like a drain on my resources. Mm -hmm. And so in that same way, self-love, self-care, self-love, it's paramount. It's not selfish at all. You have to love yourself first so that you are willing to, right? So like, so let me actually, let me rephrase this, right? Somebody who loves themselves knows how to draw the line. They know how to say no. They understand that their self-care, their health, their well-being is the most important thing. People who have high self-love know that their happiness is first and foremost, the most important thing. And they understand why that is too. Okay. People with high self-love understand that their health and happiness is the most important thing because they understand that the only way that they can give to others is once their cup is already full. People with high self-love understand that the only way that I can actually be there for my family, be there for my friends, be there for my coworkers, be there for my direct reports, be there for my children, I can only be there for them if I am already well-fed, well-rested, in a good mood, in a good place mentally, emotionally, in my health, and so forth. So they understand that. So what people with high self-love understand is, how am I supposed to be the best version for my kids? If I'm not even being the best version for myself, if I'm not the best version for myself, then I'm going to snap at my kids. If I'm not the best version of myself, if I'm sleep deprived, if I stayed up all night last night trying to work on a deadline because I didn't think that my own sleep was important enough because this deadline was more important enough, then I'm going to show up to work the next day and I'm going to be half-assed. I'm going to be snapping at my coworkers. I'm not going to be performing at my best. So people with high self-love understand that they are the most important investment because once they are taken care of, then taking care of everybody else is just going to be easy and natural and abundant. There's going to be no doubt in their mind that they can actually be there for other people once they've already taken care of themselves first. So self-love is the most unselfish thing you can do, if you think about that. It's the most generous thing you can do for other people. Because once you've taken care of yourself, now you are more than capable of giving endlessly to everybody else first, because you don't have to worry about you taking care of yourself because you already handled that. That makes sense. 100%. Thank you so much for this explanation. <laughs> I wanted to dive into a little different topic now. and Yeah. In, in the whole self-development world, or even just the whole self-education world, that the phrase purpose or mm -hmm. the why is a common buzzword in the whole, yeah, it's a, it's a common buzzword. And you, you hear many individuals and professionals, like, for example, Simon Sinek, like a very renowned author and speaker, like yeah. he uses this term and or they use this term and state that you must know or find your why as it's almost like the quote-unquote inner compass that will lead oneself to inner fulfillment and success. Now, when I refer to the term in a compass, I kind of think about Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Jack Sparrow, Johnny Depp, and his compass, because in that film, a lot of people think that compass doesn't work because it doesn't point north. But little do we know mm. that that compass actually points to what the user or the owner wants the most. Right? Mm. So, and basically owner's biggest desire. 
So I've met many individuals that have reached a point in their life where a traumatic or impactful event occurs in their adulthood, and they realize that they no, no longer know their why or purpose, or it has changed as they believe their why or purpose was programmed to cater to someone else in their life, kind of bridging onto what we were talking about. And I've heard many people always give advice of go find your why again, or go or find your purpose again. So with your knowledge and experience, what advice do you have for those individuals when it comes to rediscovering their why or the purpose? Like I've, I've heard many things where some people say, go put yourself out there, you know, or go, mm-hmm. go reflect back to, let's say, your earliest memories if you can. So like what advice mm-hmm. do you have for these individuals? Yeah. I mean, if you are trying to find your purpose, or if you're trying to find your why and you don't really know you know, what the heck you're doing anyways, you know, anymore, because you've just been kind of somehow got lost in the rat race of, you know, chasing arbitrary goals and timelines. And the first thing that I would say is you, you got to slow down. You just need to pause. Just, first of all, just pause. Okay. I think put yourself out there. Well, put yourself out for what? Put yourself out there for what? Like put your, for why? Once again, we're back to the why. It's like, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to put yourself out about? You know? So it's like, before you go into action, you actually have to go into inaction. Right. And so finding purpose, finding meaning that actually takes space, that actually takes clarity, that actually takes a lot of reflection. And so in order to find that clarity, in order to find that meaning and purpose, you actually have to slow down and you have to let that clarity come through as you are creating that space. Now, how do you do that? Do you just sit there, you know, until something pops up into your head? No, of course not. What you do instead is you intentionally spend time with yourself. So it's actually the very opposite of putting yourself out there. I actually see it as you purposely stop putting yourself out there, right? So many of my clients come to me, they're so lost, but they have so much FOMO at the same time. They're so lost, but they're constantly going to social engagements. They can't say no to anything. They're always saying yes to every project and they're constantly, you know, spinning out in circles and they're always anxious because they've overcommitted themselves all the time. They're putting themselves out there too much. And then that's why they're lost because they don't even know why the hell they put themselves out there in the first place. So for me, I'm like, I want to take that to the extreme opposite and say, no, 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 no. You actually need to do the opposite of that. And you need to spend time on yourself. You need to spend time getting in your body. First and foremost, you need to spend time working out, spend time doing some yoga, spend time with your breath, spend time in your journals, spend time getting in touch with your feelings, spend time cooking for yourself, taking care of yourself, taking long hot showers, soaking in a bathtub, receiving massages, you know, like doing nice, slow, uh, meaningful things with yourself. That is how you start to get some clarity and start to create some space so you can sift through all that clutter, noise, and distraction that's actually holding you back from really discovering what the hell you even care about in the first place. So that would be my first step advice to how do you even start to discover uh, your why, meaning, or purpose? Wow. I'll attest. I wasn't reading a book that told me to do this, but I found that, like you said, at first, like when I hit that stage... I kept trying to pull myself out there and I found that I was burning out. Mm-hmm. I was burning out a lot. I was making, I was over committing. And not only that, it was my relationships that I was committing to or those events that were tied to those relationships. They were being burned. These bridges were being burned. Mm-hmm. And until like, I couldn't take it anymore where just one day my, my body's like, you know what? Just take, take a couple weeks off. Yeah. But wow. 
I wish I had talked with you, Lillian, before when I was going through that stage. Right. And there were times where I even doubted myself because it's like, it's like, you know what? I'm not moving. I'm not moving forward. At least in my mind, it didn't seem like I'm not moving forward. So I almost right. felt like I was wasting my time. But in, in fact, like you said, the fact that you're slowing down and focusing on yourself, you're moving forward much more faster than faster. doing what you think, right? Yeah, yeah, way faster. But the problem is, is that, you know, we are so addicted to the culture of busy, you know, we glorify being busy, you know, we're praised for being busy, we're praised for doing the most, we feel a lot of FOMO, we feel like we're not, we feel like we're losers, if we're not doing something all the time, you know, like, oh, we're we're not going to parties, we're not being invited to things, we're not traveling, we're not getting into a project. And somehow we feel like we're not winning anymore, that we're somehow losing or falling behind. And that that's awful. That's awful that we're all kind of being tricked by this false idea of progress. And the fastest progress, just like you said, Aaron, and I stand by this so much, the fastest progress happens when you actually spend time with yourself. And that is where the leaps and bounds happen because ultimately at the end of the day, everyone who's out there getting caught up and busy and FOMO and doing the most, they end up having no choice but to come back and slow down and spend time with themselves because they're freaking burned out and they're having a mental breakdown and they're having anxiety attacks and panic attacks because they're spreading themselves way too thin. And so all that effort that they were trying to propel themselves forward now comes to a screeching halt and they're forced to stop. And that ends up being even more devastating because then you know what happens? You get hit with the withdrawal. Oh, you goodness. get the withdrawal. Yeah, it's like drugs. You get hit with the busy withdrawal. You get, and then that feels like anxiety. And then that feels even worse. And that feels like an existential crisis because then you're like, oh my God, I'm so burned out. What am I doing? I don't know what to do. And so that to me is way more dangerous. So all of that compounded at the end of the day, it's like, why not just intentionally spend some time slowing down and going inward on a regular basis? And then that way you never have to have these crash and burns, crash and burns, roller coasters. I kind of want to talk about the SO method, which Mm -hmm. like you mentioned earlier, consists of five pillars that your biology, your programming, your inner compass, your communication and manifesting. So can you share or explain the story on how you had began to recognize or discover that each of these or just to discover each of these pillars and the moment you realize they became a fundamental pillar in your method? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think like the short answer, the shortest answer I can maybe give you around all of that is that it really came down to doing my own inner work, first of all, for over a decade, and then helping other people do it too. And really realizing that it all kind of came down to really some core things, right? At the end of the day, we have to take care of the body because we are a physical, biological being. Biology always wins, right? Like we have to sleep, we have to eat, we have to, you know, we have to poop, you know, we have to like take care of our bodies, right? Like we are a biological being. And so that is like, you cannot ignore that. Like, and and obviously I come from health and fitness. So that to me is like a non-negotiable. And then when I started really thinking about broadly, all of my clients' problems, their self-doubt, their fears, etc. Those are the things that they have to work on. Those are the things that they all have to overcome, right? These are the blocks, the limiting beliefs. These are all the things that are always getting in their way. And that ultimately comes down to their programming. So to me, like that is the umbrella, right? Because we've all been shaped 
and programmed by our parents, society, culture, our ethnicities, our, our whatever it is, right? By the school that we went to, the, the, the kids that we hung out with, we've all been from TV, you know, like I grew up watching TV. I was a latchkey kid, you know, so all that programming, you know, has shaped the way that we see the world, the way that we interact with it and so forth. So I realized that, ah, that in itself is programming. And then I started thinking about, and by the way, to, so I guess it basically comes down to like, what are the big overarching problems that my clients always have, right? And the thing is, nobody just has one problem. Everybody has, because everything is connected, right? So everybody has different problems or issues, but in order to solve them, you have to tackle them holistically for it to really be a lasting change. So for example, you may have a fear of rejection that holds you back from applying for a job that you really want, right? But your programming, your parents, your programming tells you like, oh, just do the safe thing, you know, oh, don't take risks, you know, just be happy for the job that you have, just be humble, just be grateful, right? You hear your parents' voice in your head ever since you were a kid doing that. Well, so then that's already holding you back from going for the job. But then you're also not exercising and eating right either. Biology pillow, right? Well, if you were exercising and eating right, perhaps you'd feel more energized. Perhaps you'd feel more confident. Perhaps you'd feel more, I don't know, bold, courageous, you know, a little bit more confident in your physical well-being, which would make you be a little bit more resilient in your programming to say, you know what? Fuck that shit. I'm still going to apply for that job, you know? Yeah. And so that's why all the pillars have to work together. So that's just like those two. And then the third overarching problem issue that I see with a lot of my clients is they don't trust themselves, right? Self-doubt, self-doubt. They have trust issues. They doubt, you know, their ideas. They're afraid to raise their hands in a meeting. They have to ask everybody else for an opinion because they don't really trust that they'll make the right decision. They're afraid of making the wrong decision. They're afraid of making a mistake. And there's, and they don't trust their own gut. They don't trust their own intuition. So what they end up getting in all kinds of relationships that end up burning them. They end up taking a job that isn't actually super fulfilling. They end up not listening to their gut and then end up, you know, getting involved in a situation that ends up, you know, getting them into trouble later. So that is because their inner compass is not dialed in. Right. And so, and they don't know what it is that they truly, truly want. They don't really know what's actually their why, like you said earlier. And so that is the reason why they don't trust themselves. That's the reason why they doubt themselves. And so that's why inner compass work is its own pillar because that takes care of all of that. And then obviously nobody knows how to communicate. You'd be surprised. People don't know how to communicate. People don't know how to communicate in a way that doesn't piss each other off, that doesn't project <laughs> their shit onto other people. People don't know how to ask for what they need. People don't even know how to articulate a feeling. You would be surprised. So people don't know how to communicate, period. And that is why we have so many issues in relationships. That's why we don't get the raises that we want. That's why we end up bottling things in, leaving relationships without saying the thing that you wanted to. It's a, it's a problem. It's a huge problem. And so that's why communication also is a pillar in itself, because once you have your communication down, then obviously you can start taking better care of yourself. Then you can speak up on your feelings and follow your intuition and so forth. And then last but not least, the manifesting pillar is because people don't realize that life is their design. People don't realize that you are the co-creator of your life. People don't realize that you are not destined you know, for failure because maybe your parents didn't do well or because your teachers told you that you wouldn't amount to something. That isn't true, right? Like you are actually the creator of your life and not enough people know that and not enough people know how to then become the co-creator of their life. And there is a way to do that. There's, there are lots of strategies, formulas, you know, around how you actually 
intentionally create the life that you want. And so that's why manifesting is its own pillar as well. So to me, it's like once you approach your life, taking care of all five of those pillars, that's it. You're set. I mean, there's literally nothing else. Everything else fall, everything else falls under those pillars. There's really nothing else missing. Everything can, any other issue, any other problem that you may have, it will fall into one of those pillars. And we fortunately cover all of them when you work with me. Nice. We so, don't leave a stone unturned. <laughs> right. Exactly. What do you envision yourself five years from now? Like, I mean, you... five years from now, you know, I, I, <laughs> Any, any big projects or have you? My knee jerk reaction is I will be a eight figure, nine figure business owner. I don't, I don't even know. Like, let's just start there. Love it. <laughs> but you know, five years from now, I really don't know where I'm going to be except for it's just going to be bigger and better mm -hmm. than what it is now. That's all I know. And so I don't have any specific goals. I have vision in terms of, you know, continuing to shoot my trajectory upwards, continue to grow this community, continue to acquire as many amazing unicorns into my life and into my communities as possible, you know, continuing to expand the experiences that we have each other, have with each other, continuing to help my clients become famous, rich, happy, you know, and that's really all I see for myself in the next five years. I don't have any particular goals. I mean, we joke around a lot about a PJ and, you know... <laughs> Part parties on boats and things like that but i mean like whatever like that's like that's so like nonsense superficial like yeah i mean whatever that'll happen that's fine but you know beyond that i think the bigger vision is just to continue to expand on what we have at scale love that now we're about to wrap up the podcast here and i've got three more questions for you that i ask every single sure. one of my guests so the first question i have is is there one book or resource you would recommend to our listeners that was most impactful to you and your development in becoming who you are today Hmm. Is there one book? Oof, I don't know. You know, that that's a tough one. I mean, I think there are so many books. <laughs> I honestly, like, I, I'm not just saying this because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to promote myself or anything like that. But like, I, I honestly cannot think of a specific book right now. But if I had the book that I just wrote 10, 15 years ago, which is so empowered, discover the five layers of your body. If I had that book, 10, 15 years ago, I would have saved myself 10, 15 years of research. I would have saved myself 10, 15 years of trial and error. So I can't honestly think of a book off the top of my head that has been like super duper, like, oh my God, this book like changed my life. This is everything because it's, to me, it's, I've taken so much from so many different books. A lot of them include like the Bhagavad Gita, Eastern, you know, uh, Western body, Eastern mind, like a lot of like, you know, it's kind of spiritual books, you know, there's lot, lots of different books that I've kind of pulled from. But honestly, like, I think I think if I could go back in time, you know, and I had that book, I just think it would have accelerated my growth big time. And I would have saved myself a lot of years of self-study and exploration because my book, So Empowered, basically is a collection of how to live, breathe, think in this way and in this philosophy that will, that's basically a shortcut to living your happiest and healthiest life. Mm. Yeah. Now, second question I have is what does quote unquote, first generation or being first generation mean to you? What do you think it takes? I define first generation a little bit more metaphorically compared to the dictionary definition. So I define first generation as someone who has decided to live life on their own terms. So they pave their own path and definition of success on their own terms, no matter the hardships, obstacles, and negativity they have to overcome, they continued on. And essentially, many individuals in our world walk similar journeys in life, but no one walks the exact same path. They don't experience the very same thing in the same chronological order right that's uh, how i define first generation so if i was to ask you 
What is one of the most important things required or needed for someone to be first generation? What do you think that would be that comes to your mind? Yeah, I mean, like, obviously, as a Korean, as a daughter of Korean, Korean parents, you know, Korean immigrants, you know, as a Korean American daughter of Korean immigrant parents, I mean, when I hear first gen, the first thing I think of is like, oh, daughter of immigrant parents or like, you know, parents came here and now we are the first generation to kind of like start, you know, in the new country. Obviously, that's the first thing that comes up as a child of immigrant parents. And beyond that, you know, it's kind of similarly to you when I think of first generation, like first generation is the pioneer. First generation is the fire starter. First generation is literally first generation. It's the first to do it. It's the first to pave the way. It's the first to take that risk. It's the first to try things out. They're just the first, right? And so it's the first generation of ideas. It's the first generation of taking action. It's the first generation of taking those risks to pave the road for the second, third, fourth, and fifth generations to come. And so, you know, the first generation is you know, going to go through probably in some ways, some more part um, some more hardships and some more trial and error. But also at the same time, I also think of it as kind of going back to tying it back full circle with the whole immigrant thing. To me, to be a first generation is an opportunity to break the cycle. And that's another way that I look at it too, because especially because, you know, so much of the work that I do is helping people overcome their childhood traumas, you know, break the patterns and cycles that have been holding them back, all of their limiting beliefs that they've adopted from their culture, their families, and so forth. To me, being a first gen is an opportunity to break the cycle. For me, as a first gen daughter of immigrant parents, I am breaking the cycle of a lot of the old outdated ways of thinking that kept my parents from taking certain kinds of risks. Sure, they took a risk by coming to the States and I'm so grateful for them, but also at the same time, they still live in a lot of fear and scarcity. They still live in a lot of survival mentality. And that's okay because that's part of where they come from. And me as a first gen, I get to break that cycle. I get to change the way we look at things. I like, I get to be the one that breaks that cycle of scarcity, survival mindset of all of these limiting beliefs that they were once driven by. I get to break that enough forge a new pathway for everybody else that gets to learn from me for the generations to come. That's so powerful. And man, 100% agree with you, especially breaking that cycle, breaking those chains. Yeah. Last question I have is where can we find you on social media? Where can we find details about your work and about you and your all, all online? Where can we find all those? Yeah. So, you know, I'm super active on social media, you know, on Instagram. I have two Instagram accounts. You know, I've been having some trouble with my main account, which was at meet Lillian. So, so I started using my backup account, you know, so I've, I've just been more active on there. So you can always find me on there. It's at SoFit SF. SoFit SF is the name of my like company, like the, the, the corporation. So SoFit SF at SoFit SF on Instagram or, you know, at meet Lillian. So if you find me on there, you can email me at Lillian, Lillian at meet Lillian. So com. You can visit my website, meetlillianso.com, pick up my book, So Empowered. And you can find me on Facebook. I have free resources. I have a free group. I mean, there is so many ways to get a hold of me. I am, I'm the one that answers all my stuff. So, you know, I make myself very available. Like I'm the one that responds to all my DMs. I'm the one that responds to all my emails, Um, you know, unless it's like spammy stuff. So, you know, please don't hesitate to reach out. You know, you will hear from me directly. No bots, none of that stuff. It's just me. So, you know, slide, slide through, come through anytime. I'm here for y'all. Awesome. And for our listeners, I'll be posting all of Lillian's links in the episode description below. So be sure to check those out. And Lillian, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And man, I resonate a lot with what you've shared. And it's an honor to have you on. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can follow us on Instagram and subscribe to us on YouTube at First Generation Podcast. For any questions, comments, and inquiries, please reach out to Aaron at firstgenerationspodcast.com. 
That is A-A-R-O-N at firstgenerationspodcast.com. Stay tuned for the next episode.